Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. My name's Ben Wilcox, and I'd like to welcome you to our study or lesson prep for Alma chapters 13 through 16 this week. My goal is to help you teach or study the scriptures with more relevancy and power. Now, this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching with Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. And if you like the lesson plans or the slides or the handouts that I use, just go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to my channel, my blog with the lesson plans, and my shop. So I encourage you to grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. This week's chapters cover part two of what I call the tragedy of Ammonihah. And one certainly has to stop and ask why Alma, or Mormon for that matter, decided to include so many chapters on this particular story in the Book of Mormon. Nine whole chapters dedicated to the Ammonihah story. I mean, the stripling warriors don't get that many chapters. Ammon doesn't get that many chapters. There must be something about what happened in Ammonihah that God really wanted us to understand in the latter days. And I don't claim to know the definitive reason why, but it's a good question for us to consider as we study these chapters. And remember that this week is part two. If you haven't watched part one yet, covering chapters 8 through 12, I recommend that you do that first. But this week we'll zero in on chapters 13 through 16. And last week we identified two major themes in these chapters. We called them the rescuers and the lost. And we're going to do the same this week and begin with the rescuers. Chapter 13 is a rescuer chapter. But for an icebreaker, I like to start the lesson with this question. What if you had God's power? What would you do with it? I mean, God, he can part seas, move mountains, protect people from their enemies, call down fire from heaven, heal people, and numerous other miracles that we find all over the scriptures. But what would you do with it, though? And usually, you get some pretty fun answers to that question, especially if you're teaching the youth. They really let their imaginations run wild, so you can kind of have fun with that. But then you transition with the comment like this. Well, I'm willing to bet that there are people in this room right now that actually do have God's power. Who might I be talking about? And just let them think about that for a bit. The answer is that they do. Anybody who has access to the priesthood or priesthood authority has God's power. That's what priesthood is. We can access it and have the ability to hold a measure of it within ourselves. So the question is, if we have all these individuals in the church with that power, then why don't we see more of those things that we were talking about happening? Uh, These miracles. Why don't we see people parting rush hour traffic, or President Nelson traveling from hospital to hospital, healing all the sick people, Uh, moving mountains to aid with construction projects, multiplying food for church activities. Why don't we see that kind of thing happening? Well, because that's not really its major purpose, is it? I mean, we believe in miracles, but the purpose of the priesthood is not to bring convenience into our lives, or to remove all our obstacles and problems, or 
to bring attention or glory to the people that are performing them. Alma chapter 13 is going to help us understand real priesthood purpose. And before we dive into that phenomenal chapter, I want to express how grateful I am for the added understanding and insight we've been given in recent years concerning women in the priesthood. This chapter is not just a man chapter. This is a children of God chapter. And we should keep that in mind when we talk about priesthood, that that there's a distinction between priesthood authority and priesthood keys. And President Oaks, I think, explained it best. He said, we're not accustomed to speaking of women having the authority of the priesthood in their church callings. But what other authority can it be? When a woman, young or old, is set apart to preach the gospel as a full-time missionary, she's given priesthood authority to perform a priesthood function. The same is true when a woman is set apart to function as an officer or teacher in a church organization under the direction of one who holds the keys of the priesthood. Whoever functions in an office or calling received from one who holds priesthood keys exercises priesthood authority in performing her or his assigned duties. So keep that in mind as we study this chapter, that both men and women exercise priesthood authority in their God-given assignments. Well, priesthood is one of those words that I think we use so often that it begins to lose its meaning. So we're going to take a really close look at it and maybe substitute it with some synonyms and, and maybe we can understand it on a little bit of a deeper level. So we're going to approach this lesson with an activity that I call gospel grammar. So I hope you remember your parts of speech from elementary because it's back to school. I want you to read Alma chapter 13 verses 1 through 12, looking for individual words that teach you truths about the priesthood. See if you can find at least one that's going to fit into each of the following parts of speech and ponder what they teach you about the priesthood. And, and be sure not to divorce the words from their context either. Try to keep in mind the general principles that are being taught to you as you read as well. So find a noun that refers to the priesthood, an adjective that describes the priesthood or priesthood bearers, and a verb that describes what priesthood bearers do. How did you do? Hopefully you were able to find at least one for each. But let me show you some that stand out to me. And in the nouns category, we'll start with order. The word order shows up a lot. What does that word suggest about priesthood? And I think you can read that in two ways. There's order as in organization or structure. This power that he bestows upon humanity has standards and qualifications. Not just anybody can wake up and, and decide that they're authorized to act in God's name. God's house is a house of order. Just like a person can't wake up and decide that they're going to start issuing speeding tickets or making arrests, uh, performing surgeries, or teaching college classes, even if they have the best intentions in the world to do so. Now, you've got to receive the authority from a recognized body to consider yourself a police officer or a surgeon or a professor. That creates order and trust in a society. If there was no governing body, some centralized system that assigns authority, our nations would descend into chaos and distrust. 
And in terms of the gospel, we need a trusted, authorized system of authority to operate under. But you could also define order as a unified group, a fellowship, or an alliance. Priesthood has that connotation as well. A power of God that brings people together and links and binds them. You can see that suggested in the suffix hood. Just think of other words that end with it. You've got neighborhood, uh, brotherhood, sisterhood, knighthood. They're unified bodies of individuals working towards a common goal. The priesthood is an order based on order. Our next word, calling. The priesthood is a calling. And calling suggests duty, responsibility, or being given an assignment. But it's also defined as a strong inner impulse towards a particular course of action. And I think it can mean both. We sometimes talk about fulfilling our calling in life. So yes, that calling comes from God, but it also burns within us and inspires us. And we learn in verse 3 that that calling came from the foundation of the world according to the foreknowledge of God. And this is the doctrine of foreordination that teaches that individuals received callings and foreordinations even before they were born. These were individuals that had shown with their premortal agency exceeding faith and a desire to choose good over evil. And it doesn't mean that people with certain callings or gifts or stations in life are considered more precious or more important than anybody else, but they were individuals whom God could see before mortality that he could trust with a responsibility to bless and help as many of his other children as possible. And this certainly doesn't apply to just prophets or apostles or just men or just members of the church even. Patriarchal blessings are an indicator of the nature of some of those callings given according to the foreknowledge of God. Privilege. Exercising priesthood power is a privilege. A great privilege. It's not an entitlement. It's not a burden. There's nothing mundane or routine about it. It's a privilege. And hopefully, when we get the opportunity to use it, that we feel that way. Do the young men feel that it's a privilege to administer the sacrament? Do young women's youth presidencies feel it a privilege to lead their groups of young women? Do we feel it a privilege to speak in sacrament meeting? Do we feel it a privilege to be assigned as a minister to a, a less active family? I hope we feel privileged to have these opportunities and responsibilities placed upon us. It's a great privilege. Ordinance. This word appears twice in verse 8, but reminds us that being ordained to priesthood office is an ordinance. Ordinances are symbolic, formal acts that teach us gospel principles through physical actions. What's the symbolism of having an individual confer power by placing their hands on your head? I want you to keep that question in mind, because we're going to come back to that idea when we talk about Melchizedek. All right. Time for a different part of speech. Adjectives. Probably the most frequent adjective we see is the word holy. The word comes up 13 different times in these verses. He talks about a holy order, a holy calling, a holy ordinance. Holy means consecrated or dedicated for a special purpose. 
What a great word to describe the priesthood itself and those that exercise it. Hopefully we can be consecrated and dedicated to God's special purposes as we use our priesthood authority. Prepared. I see that word five different times. We learn that the priesthood was prepared from the foundation of the world, from eternity to all eternity. It was always part of the plan. Priesthood is eternal and essential for God's purposes to be fulfilled. It wasn't an afterthought. It was prepared. But there's something else in those verses that was prepared, or described as being prepared. It's in verse 5. What else is it, or, or who else was prepared before the foundation of the world? God's only begotten Son, the Savior, also was prepared. And then lastly, for adjectives, there's five different adjectives that are similar in nature. So we're going to group them together here. Sanctified, washed, white, pure, spotless. What is the priesthood going to do for those that exercise it? It will sanctify and purify them. And conversely, individuals who wish to exercise this power will strive to be pure, spotless, and sanctified. They'll be people who cannot look upon sin, save it were with abhorrence. They have no more disposition to do evil, as King Benjamin's people would say. And our last part of speech to look at, verbs. Choose. The priesthood bearer will choose good and not evil. Exercising. And what is it that's being exercised here? Faith. The priesthood bearer exercises exceedingly great faith. The connection of priesthood with faith is a strong one. It's said four times in these verses. Faith is one of the prerequisites to exercising priesthood power. And become. Bearing the priesthood isn't just about doing something, it's about becoming something. Becoming somebody like Christ. And then I've saved this one for last, because I think it stands out to me as one of the preeminent purposes of priesthood power. It's right there in verse 1, the very first thing that Alma highlights as a purpose of the priesthood, and that is to teach. To teach these things unto the people. What are these things that he's referring to? Well, what he just taught in chapter 12, the plan of salvation and God's commandments. And we teach them so that, verse 2, the people might know in what manner to look forward to his son for redemption. The purpose of the priesthood is to help people know what they need to do to gain redemption. And again in verse 6, God called and ordained them to teach his commandments unto the children of men. Now, I want to dive a little deeper in here. This, for me, was the most powerful idea expressed in the chapter. If I say to myself, okay, as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I have access to the power of God's priesthood. What do I do with it? Is it about barking out orders? No. Is it about running meetings or asking people to say the opening prayer or making sure that ordinances are done correctly? Maybe a little. God needs to run his kingdom in order. But I really think that that's secondary. What is it really all about? We talk about honoring the priesthood. What does that mean? How do I honor 
the priesthood. And Alma is going to teach us this by sharing an example. Somebody that he felt embodied what the priesthood was all about. That person's name is Melchizedek. And I want you to read Alma chapter 13, verses 14 through 19, and mark everything that you learn about Melchizedek. Some of the things that you may have picked out. He was a high priest. Abraham paid tithing to him. And he was a king over the land of Salem. But then we learn something about the people in his kingdom. They were wicked, full of all manner of wickedness. But with mighty faith, he preached repentance to his people. And lo and behold, they repent. He establishes peace in the land under the office of the high priesthood. And in Doctrine and Covenants 107, we learn that the full name of the higher priesthood is the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. But, out of respect or reverence to the name of the Supreme Being, to avoid the too frequent repetition of his name, they, the church in ancient days, called that priesthood after Melchizedek. And why Melchizedek? Doctrine and Covenants 107, verse 2. Because he was such a great high priest. He's the perfect example of what a priesthood holder is and should do. And what did he do? Well, through his faith, through his preaching, through his example, he was able to turn a wicked people into a righteous one. He was able to establish peace in people's lives. That is exercising priesthood authority at its best. Teaching, acting, and leading in such a way that it lifts and blesses others and brings peace to them. Melchizedek, come to find out, is actually a title rather than a given name. More than likely, Melchizedek is Shem, one of Noah's sons. But Melchizedek, the title, means King of Righteousness. And we also learn that they called him the Prince of Peace. That's the kind of authority God wants exercised in his name. The kind that encourages righteousness and peace, not dominion and conquest. And earlier I mentioned the symbolism of the ordinance of formally receiving priesthood authority. How is that performed? The individual sits in a chair while another person with authority places their hands on their head and gives them that power or that calling. What's the symbolism? Well, when a king becomes a king, there's a ceremony. It's called a coronation. The future king sits on a chair or a throne while someone in authority, usually a member of the clergy, places a crown upon their heads and utters words of blessing. Well, when priesthood is conferred, it's the same movement and the same idea. Except when you receive priesthood or priesthood office or a calling, you're becoming a different kind of prince or king or royalty. You become a prince of peace and a king of righteousness, a princess of peace, a queen of righteousness. As we exercise priesthood authority, hopefully we can earn those titles and follow the example of Melchizedek. So how do we know if we're honoring our priesthood authority? Well, are people's lives better because of what we do, because of who we are? Do we lift people? Do people find it easier to do what's right when they're around us? 
Do we bring peace into their lives? And if yes, then we are honoring our priesthood authority. And then I'd like to take you to another verse in this chapter and add one more verb to our list. See if you can find it in verse 24. For behold, angels are declaring it unto many at this time in our land. And this is for the purpose of preparing the hearts of the children of men to receive his word at the time of his coming in his glory. And the key verb to me there is preparing. That's the role of priesthood authority, and it includes all the things that we've already talked about. Teaching, living righteously, establishing peace. It's all about using that God-given power and responsibility to prepare others to receive Christ and his word. In short, priesthood is not about me. It's not about the one exercising the authority. It's all about blessing and lifting and preparing others for Christ to come into their lives. I know this verse is talking about angels, but aren't priesthood leaders also angels in a way? Isn't that what Alma and Amulek are doing at this very point with the people of Ammonihah? Aren't they preparing the hearts of the children of men to receive Christ's word? Isn't that what Melchizedek did? And here, the coming he's referring to is the literal coming of Christ to the Nephites. But whenever the scriptures speak of Christ's coming, whether it's talking about his mortal ministry or his second coming, it applies to more than just those relatively few that will happen to be alive when he comes, or when he came. If these kind of verses only apply to those people that were living, or will live, at his time, then why would we find so much in the scriptures? Christ's coming can happen to all of us in our lifetime in some way. Probably not physically, but certainly he can manifest himself to us through the Spirit. And that's what those bearing priesthood authority are preparing the way for. Not only are we rescuers, but we're preparers. I know we emphasize in the church the fact that we need to come unto Christ, that we need to go to him. This whole course of study is called Come, Follow Me. And I think that's wonderful. That's a true and vital principle. We do need to go to him and follow him. But if we visualize in our minds that Christ is static, just standing there, waiting for us to come unto him, then I think we're missing a key component. The scriptures also speak of Christ coming to us. He's moving towards us as we move towards him. We meet in the middle. One place you can see this is John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Alma understands this better than anybody. He reached towards his Savior from the depths of his suffering and repentance, but the Savior snatched him out of it. We reach, and he reaches. We come, and he comes. And I use my priesthood authority to help prepare people for that coming, and to encourage them to move towards him. John the Baptist was called a preparer for Christ. He was called to make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. That's our job as priesthood bearers, 
there are barriers between others and Christ. So we become valley fillers, mountain levelers, road straighteners and smoothers. And we do that, verse 27, from the inmost part of our hearts, yea, with great anxiety even unto pain, that they'll hearken unto our words. Again, it's not about us, it's about them. And now that we've been taught the purpose of priesthood authority, let's see it in action. Alma and Amulek in chapter 16, verses 13 through 21. What aspects of priesthood authority that we've just learned about do you see in those verses? Well, they go out and they preach repentance, just like Melchizedek did, without respect of persons. Then there's another one of our key verbs. Through their efforts, the Spirit was able to prepare their minds and their hearts to receive Christ's word at his coming. And this is all leading to one overall goal that God has for his children. It's a key phrase that we haven't identified yet. But if you've been reading close, you may have picked up on it. It's here in 1617. But it's also in all of these other verses, in chapter 12 and 13. And what's that phrase, that common phrase? Enter into his rest. Ultimately, we all want to enter into God's rest. And Doctrine and Covenants 84.24 tells us that his rest is the fullness of his glory. Well, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to use my priesthood authority for. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a preparer. I want to be a valley filler and a mountain leveler. I don't need to be in charge. I don't need to have people look at me or think highly of me or obey me. It's not about me. The priesthood is never about us. I want to be a preparer to all that I meet. I want to prepare the hearts and minds of my ward members and those that aren't members to receive the words of Christ. I want to prepare my students to receive the words of Christ. I want to prepare my children for Christ's coming into their lives. And, and I do it from the inmost part of my heart, with great anxiety, even unto pain, because I want them to enter into God's rest. I want them to have joy and gladness. I want them to experience the fullness of God's glory. So maybe some questions to ponder here. Who have been some of the preparers in your life? And how have they influenced you? What can you do to fulfill the purpose of your priesthood authority more fully? And then what gospel grammar word meant the most to you in this lesson? So, the priesthood is about being a preparer. Preparing the hearts and minds of others for the coming of Christ. It's not about us. I'm so grateful for the preparers and the rescuers in my life. My father was a preparer. My mother was a preparer. My bishops, my youth leaders, my teachers, my grandparents, my siblings, the living prophets and apostles, 
These are people who have righteously used their priesthood authority to prepare my mind and my heart to receive Christ and his words. And I'm forever grateful to them. And may we all seek to fulfill these roles in our sphere of influence and save many, including ourselves, so that we can all rejoice and enter into his rest, the fullness of God's glory. Now we're going to turn to the more discouraging message of these chapters. We're going to leave the rescuers behind and focus on the lost now. The people of Ammonihah have a sobering lesson to teach us. And we'll start with the following icebreaker. Can you recognize the pattern here? Which puzzle piece should come next? Choose from the pieces in the second row. The correct one would be this piece. And why? You can see that the sides of the puzzle pieces either go out or in. So take each edge of the pieces one at a time. Along the top edge of the piece, it goes in, 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 in. So our correct shape will have an in on the top. Then in the middle of the piece, it goes in on the left side, in on the right side, out on the left side, out on the right side. So the next piece would be in on the left side. Then the bottom edge of the piece goes in, out, in, out. So the next piece would be in. That would mean that this piece with three ends is the correct answer. Well, that activity has hopefully given you some practice on recognizing patterns. Because I have another one for you now. I call it the Ammonihah pattern. Last week, we began to look at this pattern of witnesses and reactions, but let's go a little bit deeper into what happened. See if you can fill out the following pattern chart to discover how God often works with societies that are nearing what we would call a fullness of iniquity. And uh, I'll make this available as a handout. We discovered last week that God will never destroy a people without first sending them witnesses or rescuers to try and turn them around. Remember, God loves all of his children, even his rebellious ones, and he wants to give them ample opportunities to change before he allows for their destruction. So here we go. These first three boxes should be fairly easy to fill in since we discussed them last week. However, we didn't really focus much on the people's reactions or the results. So let's do that now. Our first witness is Alma. And what was the people's first reaction to Alma in 8.13? They withstood his words, reviled him, spit upon him, and cast him out. And what was the result of that reaction? In 8.28, the people did wax more gross in their iniquities. They got worse. Our second witness, Amulek. What was the people's initial reaction to him? 10.13, they sought to catch him and Alma in their words so that they could deliver them to their judges to be cast into prison. And the outcome of this rejection and desire? They were more angry with Amulek. So we're going downhill fast. Our third witness, Zeezrom. What was the people's reaction to his witness when he turns and begins to defend Alma and Amulek? They revile him, spit on him, and cast him out from among them. 
And then they go and send people to throw rocks at them, at him and the other believers. And the result of this rejection? Well, by this point, they've completely lost not only the spirit, but all semblance of humanity and ethics as they burn women and children in a giant fire and make Alma and Amulek watch. This is a people that has reached a fullness of iniquity. It really makes me wonder what kind of hatred or evil could cause a human being to throw a child into a fire. Satan has obviously gained full power over these people and their actions. And you know, why do they decide to kill them in that particular way? The disturbing answer comes in verse 14. Here, they're gloating over Alma and Amulek and saying, After what you have seen, will you preach again unto this people that they shall be cast into a lake of fire and brimstone? Do you see what they're doing there? Oh, we're going to burn, eh? We're going to be cast into a lake of fire and brimstone. We'll show you fire and brimstone. Who's burning now? They're turning Alma's figurative words into a literal nightmare. It's amazing to me that even after this horrific display of agency, God is still willing to give them, or at least some of them, one final witness. And see if you can find it. It's a different kind of voice this time. Alma and Amulek are thrown into prison, bound, deprived food and water, stripped of their clothes, gnashed on, spit upon, and mocked for the space of many days. And finally the Lord says, in a sense, enough is enough. And he gives the people their fourth witness, a fourth voice. Let's read these verses and see how you would describe this witness. And Alma cried, saying, How long shall we suffer these great afflictions, O Lord? O Lord, give us strength according to our faith which is in Christ, even unto deliverance. And they broke the cords with which they were bound. And when the people saw this, they began to flee, for the fear of destruction had come upon them. And it came to pass that so great was their fear that they fell to the earth, and did not obtain the outer door of the prison. And the earth shook mightily, and the walls of the prison were rent in twain, so that they fell to the earth. And the chief judge, and the lawyers, and priests, and teachers, who smote upon Alma and Amulek, were slain by the fall thereof. And Alma and Amulek came forth out of the prison, and they were not hurt. For the Lord had granted unto them power, according to their faith which was in Christ. And they straightway came forth out of the prison, and they were loosed from their bands, and the prison had fallen to the earth. And every soul within the walls thereof, save it were Alma and Amulek, was slain. And they straightway came forth into the city. Now the people, having heard a great noise, came running together by multitudes to know the cause of it. And when they saw Alma and Amulek coming forth out of the prison, and the walls thereof had fallen to the earth, they were struck with great fear, and fled from the presence of Alma and Amulek, even as a goat fleeth with her young from two lions. And thus they did flee from the presence of Alma and Amulek. So who, or better yet, what is the fourth witness or voice? I would call it the voice of nature. Remember the amplification principle that we discussed. God using more and more powerful witnesses. Louder voices. They've long since ignored the still small voice. 
And then they've rejected the louder voice of God's prophets and witnesses. So now he's going to speak even louder. And just like when you were younger, the louder your mom or dad's voice got, the more trouble you were in. One of the best places to see this principle is Doctrine and Covenants 43, 24-26. O ye nations of the earth, how often would I have gathered you together as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but ye would not. How oft have I called upon you by the mouth of my servants, and by the ministering of angels, and by mine own voice, and by the voice of thunderings, and by the voice of lightnings, and by the voice of tempests, and by the voice of earthquakes, and great hailstorms, and by the voice of famines and pestilences of every kind, and by the great sound of a trump, and by the voice of judgment, and by the voice of mercy all the day long, and by the voice of glory and honor and the riches of eternal life, and would have saved you with an everlasting salvation, but ye would not. Behold, the day has come when the cup of the wrath of mine indignation is full. Now, do you see the message there? God has called so often and with so many different voices. You can almost sense the tone of exasperation in that list. I've tried everything with you guys, but you won't listen. I've tried the soft voice. I've tried the loud and scary voice. I've tried the voice of judgment and the voice of mercy. I've tried it all. Nothing works. And so now, the cup of mine indignation is full. You've reached the fullness of iniquity. The day of mercy has passed. And still, we have yet to see the people's reaction to this louder voice. Are they going to change after seeing this? Their leaders and judges and lawyers have been killed in the collapse, but the rest of the people of Ammonihah, are they going to repent now? Are they going to repent after such an awesome and obvious display of God's power? His mighty voice? Alma chapter 15, verse 1. Alma and Amulek are commanded to depart out of the city. It doesn't work. They just tell them to leave. No change, no desire to repent. So, as we've seen in the pattern already established, every time they reject a witness, what happens to their level of iniquity? 1515. They yet remained a hard-hearted and a stiff-necked people, and they repented not of their sins. Well, this is all leading up to our final outcome. After they've rejected all those witnesses, what eventually becomes of the people of Ammonihah? And chapter 16 holds the answer. The Lamanites come in upon the wilderness side into the borders of the land even into the city of Ammonihah, and began to slay the people and destroy the city. So the Lamanites come in and destroy them. But interesting, if you look in verse 1, we discover that there have been no wars or contentions for a certain number of years between the Nephites and the Lamanites. So they'd had peace for some time. But then all of a sudden, in that same year that Alma and Amulek are cast out of Ammonihah, the Lamanites attack. And by chance, the very first city that they happen upon is Ammonihah. And it's not until after Ammonihah is destroyed that the Nephites are able to raise a sufficiently sized army to combat them. 
And then eventually the Lamanites are defeated and driven out of the land. But then look at verse 12. And the Lamanites did not come again to war against the Nephites until the 14th year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. And thus for three years did the people of Nephi have continual peace in all the land. So years of peace before and years of peace afterwards. We have just this one little problem out of nowhere in the year 81 BC. Coincidence? I'll let you decide. So the final outcome for the people of Ammonihah, verses 9 through 11. And thus ended the 11th year of the judges, the Lamanites having been driven out of the land, and the people of Ammonihah were destroyed. Yea, every living soul of the Ammonihahites was destroyed, and also their great city, which they said God could not destroy because of its greatness. But behold, in one day it was left desolate, and the carcasses were mangled by dogs and wild beasts of the wilderness. Nevertheless, after many days, their dead bodies were heaped up upon the face of the earth, and they were covered with a shallow covering. And now so great was the scent thereof that the people did not go in to possess the land of Ammonihah for many years. And it was called Desolation of Nahor's, for they were of the profession of Nahor, who were slain, and their lands remained desolate. This particular lesson may be why so many chapters are dedicated to the Ammonihah story. Yet it's not the only one of its kind in the Book of Mormon. There are a number of stories where a group of people, a nation, or a city suffers destruction or annihilation. In fact, the Book of Mormon both begins and ends with one. In the very first chapter of the Book of Mormon, we see Lehi warning the inhabitants of Jerusalem that they will be destroyed because of wickedness. As the reader, we know that this does eventually take place. And then the Book of Mormon also ends with such a story as we see the annihilation of the entire Nephite society. And in between those two stories, we've got more examples, such as the story of the Jaredites, or the people at the time of Christ's coming. And then you have the people of Ammonihah. And in the history of our earth, sometimes a group of people becomes so wicked that they lose the right to continue living on the planet. There's a point that is reached where it seems that God feels it makes no more sense to allow their society to continue making themselves and other people more miserable through their wickedness. I'm sure he laments having to send the spirits of his children to societies that have reached this point, knowing that they don't really even stand a chance for righteousness and happiness in such terrible conditions. Perhaps he feels they stand a better chance of changing in the spirit world. They've reached the fullness of iniquity, and when that happens, they're swept off the face of the earth. So what's the message for you and I? Can we heed the warning of the tragedy of Ammonihah? And yet, this acts as a general warning to our society as a whole, but we as individuals can't really control all of society. We can only control ourselves. But what about a personal message here? What might it be for us? My thought? Listen to the witnesses. When we begin to rebel in any form against God's commandments, lovingly, he's going to send voices and witnesses to correct us. Rescuers and preparers. Hopefully, 
will change when we hear the soft whisperings of the Spirit telling us we need to to change or resist temptation. But if that fails, hopefully we'll change when we hear the voice of family members, teachers, church leaders, prophets. And if that fails, hopefully we'll change when the voice of nature speaks in the form of consequences, challenges, and calamities. The Lord loves us enough to chastise us, to admonish us, to counsel us, and allow us to suffer the consequences of poor decisions. He's going to give us many chances. But be careful about your rejections, because the more we reject, the harder it is to change. So a final question to consider here. What do you feel is the most important thing the Ammonihah chapters taught you? And why? Well, my friends, that's all I have for you this week. Thank you for joining me. I really feel privileged that I get the chance to share my love of the scriptures with so many of you each week. And I really appreciate your kind comments and your gratitude as well. Thank you so much for watching. And as always, get out there 